In this podcast, Heather Zetterberg, Chair of Lower School Math, speaks with parents about the math curriculum in third grade. First of all, thank you very much for coming. Time is certainly precious, and as we are now back from March break, it feels like time is flying by. So just the fact that we were able to make sure that we got this on the schedule back in the early fall uh, was really helpful. I'm just going to take this opportunity to share with you a little bit about our beliefs in math. And for some of you who have been here for other mornings, some of this is going to be consistent. Our goal really was this year as being our curricular review year start, year one of our curricular review cycle for math, to make sure that we spread um, consistent messages across all grade levels. So I do apologize if you've heard already some of the messages that I'm going to deliver to you. But I also wanted to put um, those beliefs in context and so to make the connection between what you experienced with your child in the classroom this morning to help illuminate some of our values and some of our beliefs. Um, like I said, this is the year one of our uh, curriculum review process. And we started out in the fall with having a lot of feedback via surveys. And so a lot of the information that we receive through those surveys have really helped to inform us moving forward about communicating uh, to you what we do and why we do what we do. And so it's in that spirit that we're meeting to discuss as well. Um, I wanted to just give an overview of what, generally speaking, the trajectory of math instruction looks like across the grade bands, moving from kindergarten through 12th grade. There are a bunch of different ways that we can be representing what we do and what gets instructed at one point. If we look at this continuum, we can see that while there, the content areas are really delineated as number, algebra, geometry, measurement, data analysis, and probability, what we know about math is how interconnected it is. So this is actually an even more appropriate way to take a look at what the big ideas of third grade math instruction would be, where it gets really kind of messy, where there's a lot of connectedness and overlap. The larger the circle it is, the larger the representation or the percentage of topics and skills that are related to that. And what you can see is that we've got a lot that we're dealing with flexibility of numbers. So it's about recalling operations. It's about recalling um, number connections and seeing the interconnectedness of numbers. But then we also get to the point where we see that being able to be flexible with numbers does contribute to helping us think about shapes, which is also connected about to thinking in equal groups, which leads us to multiplication and area, which leads us to tiling, which leads us back to perimeter, and all of these skills that are so interconnected and interwoven. What you were able to see this morning is that while our focus was on area and perimeter, because those are those skills that the kids really worked on before vacation, there was a whole lot of other types of activity that had to go on. There was a great deal of thinking. I wanted to also give you a snapshot of what the big ideas of fourth grade are going to be. And these are also in your handouts. But then we wanted to get into kind of the, the detail. And also in the handout that's at your seat, you'll see that there is a checklist for grade three and on the back side a checklist for grade four. You're familiar with the third grade math checklist because you've seen one report card already this year. <clears throat> but it's also important to let you know where we're going. But the other important thing for me to highlight is that there is a very important reason why we have 2018-2019 listed at the top. 
again, as part of our review process, it's about taking a look at what we're doing, how we're reporting information to you, what information, you know, how aligned is our instruction with how we deliver information about a child's accomplishments to you. So this is going to be something which isn't going to necessarily change dramatically, but this isn't set in stone. So for example, fourth grade next year, it's not going to be exactly the same as this, but it at least gives you an idea of those big concepts that we'll be looking for. This is not a comprehensive list. As I've shared with other parents at other presentations, our scope and sequence and the guide that our teachers follow in print spans over 27 pages with all the details and the minutia of specific skills that we are looking for that helps us kind of guide the flow and sequence. And we use as, you know, in print, a checklist. We also have that in our online database for our in-house purposes, our, our um, curriculum mapping program. Um, but again, it's about taking a look at those bigger ideas that are really going to help inform where kids are moving next and how solid and comfortable they are with those skills. So those checklists are not the only things that happen in each of these grades. It's just kind of ex taking out those that are um, most significant to report back to you on. So what I also wanted to do is to share with you what many of us might have seen in a textbook series of a progression of problems to solve in regards to area and perimeter. <clears throat> so if you were in school like in the 70s, this might have been the case, even early 80s, where you would have, and I'm just going to let this run automatically, you would see that you are given more and more numbers, more and more structure, more and more parameters, and then gradually over time, the shape changes, or missing numbers um, have to be found, where ultimately it's very procedural, it's very scripted, it's very guided, and it's very one-dimensional. Where you're doing a problem, you might change it up a little bit, but still it's really the same problem. And our numbers might get a little bit bigger, but the concept is still pretty much the same concept. Then we get into the quote-unquote word problems. Just because a problem is written in words as opposed to numbers, all of a sudden textbook developers used to think, well, that's what makes it a word problem. But what's missing in all of those activities is the kind of rich openness and the depth of questioning that you experience. Now, granted, there is a place for these foundational skills to happen, and there's a necessity for some of these to become more routine practices for students, but that's not where we leave them. So when you were looking in the classroom today at the activities that I have listed on the left-hand side, some of those characteristics of those activities are really what help to illustrate for you the beliefs that we have that I'll go into in just a couple minutes. I wanted to explain what some of these terms are just to, so that we all have the same kind of vocabulary and definition. We really look to using a lot of what are referred to as low floor, high ceiling questions. So there are questions that have an entry point for every child, but it also allows and affords the opportunity for a teacher or a child independently with, or with the teacher guidance to help push and extend that thinking and push and extend that question where some of our children might be wrestling with what appears to be something very much related to perimeter, but actually we can tweak it, we can turn it, we can guide it so that it becomes an experience related to algebraic reasoning and hypothesizing and developing a conjecture that might be able to apply to another concept or another skill. So 
That then means that a lot of those activities have to be open-ended, where it's not just saying find two uh, shapes or find eight shapes that have an area of five. It's about finding however many pentominoes you can and how at what point will you know that you found them all. I was in one of the classrooms and uh, one of the, the students looked at dad and said, after dad gave an answer and said, well, how do you know that? Give me the proof. And I thought, oh, yes, that makes my heart sing. Because that's what we're asking our kids to do. It's not just about giving an answer, but it's about reasoning. It's about defending. It's about justifying. In another classroom, a child said, oh, I, I found all of the different shapes possible with a perimeter of 36. So I said, well, explain to me how you found this one. It happened to be a rectangle that was a 2 by 12 rectangle. And as she started to count and started to reason and explain, she says, no, wait a minute, that's 40. That's way too long. And I know that's way too long because I've only counted around half. And I know that perimeter of a rectangle is I take you know, side A and side B, as long as they're not the ones that are parallel, and double that number. And all of a sudden, in that fabulous mistake that she made, she was able to articulate an understanding. And then she looked at her six by six a square, which a rectangle, and said, wait a minute, I thought about area. That can't possibly work. And if I want to make it a square, it has to be nine by nine. That's the type of learning that developed as a result of the opportunity to have those experiences and to make those mistakes. And then she looked at the two other rectangles that were on her paper and said, oh, wait a minute, I totally missed it on this. And then the next thing that she said is, well, wait a minute, so what, how many squares long is my paper? Do I have to turn it this way to make that rectangle? So that she's really starting to think about things, but every single rectangle on that paper did not have a perimeter of 36. But in a matter of seconds, every single perimeter had a reason for why she came up with it. She knew it, and she knew how to correct it. So that's that open-ended nature, but that also gets at, this is where she started, this is where she is, but now with that knowledge, this is where we can take her. And I saw a lot of the students doing that to their parents, and I apologize. I, I saw a couple of moms coming and say, wait a minute, no coffee cups yet? I need it, I've just done math. But that's the excitement, and we come with different layers of baggage perhaps, but our kids are hopefully excited about these explorations and excited about making mistakes. They're active and engaging. They're not passive and rote. They're not just a matter of pushing pencil across the paper. But because of the nature of some of these, it's really hard to capture evidence. So you know, what is it that we do? Well, what goes home are the things that are easily recordable and easily observable. But that's not the nuts and the bolts of the very important things that happen. Because so much of this that's happening, yes, we can be going forever and ever taking pictures, taking photographs, doing audio recordings. And we're, we're really having to work very hard to figure out the ways to convey that type of learning and that type of inquiry and excitement and investigation when we're having these discussions with parents. So being able to share that with you is something that's definitely on our radar. Um, again, they're all rooted in questions. They invite communication. One of the greatest things that I saw yesterday, I was in a classroom, third graders, and somebody came up with an idea and the other person said, oh, well, how could that possibly be? That, you know, those aren't going to fit together. And it was about the pentominoes and could you create your pentominoes so that all the pentominoes fit to build a rectangle? 
And so the discussion went on, no, it's not possible. You're always going to have spaces. Well, is it really possible? Because look, these fit together. And one, one, of the ch one of the children said, well, I know it's got to at least be possible. We have to at least try it. If my mom can pack the car for a trip <laughs> and everything fits in, maybe this will work. And I thought, OK, that's about making connections. That's about communication. But really, so then the endeavor became not just creating as many pentomino pieces as possible, but can you create them in such a way that they're all going to fit? Um, the most important thing, we talked about it, these being multidimensional, that there are lots of different entry points, lots of different angles, lots of different things to consider. They all call a number sense. But the thing that I want to highlight is the opportunity to struggle. Those other activities that are the questions that I showed you really don't provide that opportunity to struggle. There might be, oh, I have to wrestle with fractions. I'm not so sure what to do with that. Let me explore that. These can be messy. These can be challenging because the answer is not going to pop into my head right away necessarily. Or maybe if it does, maybe I need to challenge myself to think about it a different way. So hopefully, given those experiences and all of those activities and the dice and the little pencils and the envelopes, we'll be going home today. And I do encourage you to explore and investigate and continue this. But that was just a very small sampling of a lot of the kinds of rich questions and activities that your students are able to explore. So that leads us to our beliefs about math, which I do have listed for you just on a one-page um, thing in your handout. But I wanted to go through, um, now that you've seen what examples of those kinds of activities are, how do they come through, and how does it define who we are? So first of all, we know that everyone can learn math to the highest level. One of the greatest barriers is when a child labels themselves or when a child is labeled. And when we talk about the barriers, we're talking about having a fixed mindset or having a growth mindset. And what we know from a lot of research from neuroscientists that have come out of research done at Stanford and Northwestern uh, and ongoing research is that there is no math gene. There is no such thing as a math person. But we can have fixed attitudes that either define us as a math person and we think that we are exceptional in that area or we think that we can't possibly be. Our goal as educators is to make sure that every student sees their potential, works towards their potential, and we support them along the way, provide the encouragement. When we talk about those labels, though, we're talking about the labels of I can't, as well as those labels of I can. And I can being that this is who I am. This is my identity. I am a math person or I am exceptional at this, because those are, believe it or not, more limiting to a child than the fear or, an, or a belief that they can't. And the reason why is, if you expect or you've been told that you are at a level 10 on level 10, all of a sudden taking risks is a whole lot scarier. There's a whole lot more at stake. So it's about making sure that kids realize, yes, this is an area of strength for you, but it's also important that you struggle. It's also important that you know the importance of mistakes and how mistakes help you. And we'll talk about that as one of our beliefs as we move along. But we know that some students might need to put a little bit of extra effort or a little different effort or a little extra time or use their time differently into reaching those higher levels of math. And the wonderful thing about being in the foot community is that we have an incredible amount of opportunities for discussions with previous year's teachers or current year's teachers to be able to explore what worked, what didn't. So we're not starting from ground zero 
every year, every fall. And the other thing is that, uh, you know, I have the benefit of following these children up through fifth grade when then they leave me. But then I get to kind of continue and carry on that information and say, well, here's an activity that this child really wrestled with at first, but they were incredibly successful after making a mistake. Use this as an example. I know this is hard what you're doing right now, but Heather said, and then we're able to kind of carry on and move forward in a little bit more efficient way. We talk about mistakes being valuable, that mistakes grow the brain. A lot of the work about brain plasticity came, believe it or not, from experiences of the London taxicab drivers who have what's called the knowledge, the test in order to be able to pass to get their certification to drive taxis in London. This fall when I was there, I jokingly, after doing some research, jokingly asked, so is there really such a thing as the knowledge? I swear to you, I really thought that this man was going to crash into a building. He says, well, I don't know about the knowledge. That's the worst thing that you could ever do. But, and of course, he said, I'm sure I'm not going to get Alzheimer's because my brain is always engaged. But the idea is that when you have to constantly be challenging yourself and, and kind of twisting your brain and struggling and making mistakes, that's when you are going to be able to have those synapses in your brain start to connect and continue to fire. And what's interesting, I did not know this until I started doing some research um, this year, is that you don't even need to be told about your mistake. You don't need to even know that what the correct answer is. You don't need to actually go and correct it. Just the fact that you've made the mistake, that disequilibrium in your brain is enough to help fire synapses. That was really cool. Great, uh, that's out of Stanford uh, research last year, 2018. Questions are really important. And you'll see that on all of those papers that you are taking home or will be, take, will be receiving home today, <clears throat> a lot of the questions or a lot of the activities have different questions. And they might be one question worded differently depending upon the activity. But one of the greatest bits of advice that I ever received used with my kids who still to this day say they hated it yet I think they secretively loved it, was to answer a question with a question. Because first of all, it forces them to be the ones responsible for the thinking and developing that understanding and having ownership. But it also requires them to be thinking differently. So in your packet, I did list for you a bunch of questions that are really good, rich questions. And sometimes just putting it back on the child and asking them to explain, reason, justify, defend, or, an extent, or extend something is going to be pretty helpful. So I really encourage you to be asking those questions. We send a fixed mindset message if we deliver a message to a child, that's right, that's wrong. But if we ask them a question, we convey to them a message that we believe in them and that it's worth exploring and that they can continue to grow and investigate. So take a look at those questions. I actually had them in my kitchen on the wall for a while and then I would receive these little messages from my girls. I don't like when you ask me this. Like it became like the secret document. They don't think I still have it. I do and it will, it will reappear. Um, the other thing is that creativity is critical to math. And when I talk about creativity in math, I'm not talking while there are definitely visual art aspects to math, which are, I mean, art, visual arts, performing arts are embedded with concepts of math. What I'm talking about here is being a flexible thinker. It's about finding non-standard, unique, 
maybe innovative ways to solve problems. And it's about not just solving a problem one way and hoping that that way will always work. It's about being open to thinking flexibly. So when we're talking about creativity, we're talking about this flexibility of thinking, this flexibility of mind. But it's also a very visual skill. It's a very visual um, area. And it's when we can create those visuals and when we can start to see patterns is when all of a sudden a lot of that meaning jumps off the paper. It's also one of the most critical underpinnings for a child to be able to be successful with algebra later on. We need to be able to see those patterns. We need to be able to think flexibly. And again, when I look back at some of the just quick little snippets that I saw and a couple that I've reported to you this morning is that when kids are able to discover those patterns, they own them, they're able to apply them, and it then is able to be applied to other concepts and other skills. We talked again about math being about making connections and communicating, and it's not just about the connectedness of that web that I showed you with the big ideas of how areas connected to perimeter, how areas connected to multiplication and so forth, but it's also about seeing those connections to other areas and to real life. So when you, when a child is able to extract understanding of fractions because of experiences with cooking, or when a child is able to say to me, which happened on Tuesday in Melissa's classroom, oh wait, we were talking about perimeter when we were talking about something that we had to fix in our house. We were talking about having to fix the baseboard. Yeah, that's exactly an application. So it's about finding those real life connections. This just happens to be a little visual when, um, when mathematicians sometimes get together or even just independently and think about different ways that we can connect. This is sometimes like what our brain looks like. So um, how is it that we can make these connections or make opportunities to help kids connect different skills and different ideas? But then also the key thing that you are experiencing today is that how do we show what we know? Can we use diagrams, pictures? Do we use tiles? Do we take photos? Do we use words? Do we make equations? And the idea is that we are looking for multiplicity. We're looking for as many different ways as students can represent their understanding and also coming up with as many different solutions because that's going to ultimately help solidify their understanding. Depth is more important than speed is probably one of the key takeaways. Kids sometimes feel that it's important to rush, spit out an answer, and consider it done. And when I get a response like that from a child, what I'll say is, you're not thinking like a mathematician. Our top mathematicians, those winners of the Fields, model, the Fields Medal, which is essentially the Nobel Prize in math, will always say, I mean, I say always, certainly in the past 40 years, what I see is that these mathematicians have said, I'm so slow. Lawrence Schwartz is one of the uh, a recent recipient who said, I forever thought I was the most stupid person in math. And in 11th grade, I was ready to give up math because I was so slow. Right, because he was careful, because he saw those connections, he made those connections. Same thing with Miriam Mirzakhani, who was the first female Fields Medal winner in 2014, who said, I just stopped to see the beauty of math. And because I stopped to see the beauty and because I made things visual is why I was able to see connections that other people couldn't. So it's really important that we send this message to our kids. But 
let's also think about what reality of life is. I mean, there are times that we have time constraints. You know, we can't spend all day trying to get out the door to get to school, right? We do have to be aware of the fact that we need to get our students ready for times when there is a time restriction. We are working really hard at looking at the research to find that balance, to provide opportunities and experiences for children to have to work within reasonable time constraints so that they are developing an efficiency of thinking, an efficiency of work while not compromising that flexibility. But we also are wrestling with the whole thing about timed facts and recalling basic facts. And you'll see on our checklist, we say recalls basic addition, subtraction, multiplication facts within three seconds. We know that the more quickly or the more accessible some answers are, the more easily they can be applied or retrieved to be applied to different skills. This is something we are actively wrestling with and doing a great deal of research on and being informed by some great work. So, you know, moving forward, you'll see that there are lots of changes in that, uh, certainly for the balance of this year as well as moving forward into fourth and fifth grade. Um, but we um, do make sure that we expect students to think carefully and deeply instead of just spit out an answer. We also talk about math being about learning and not just performing. It shouldn't be just about trying to get every single answer on your paper correct and never have to go back and revisit it. But again, a lot of those tasks that they're in, involved with are void of written evidence that we can easily share back to parents. Again, another area that we're working on, how can we embed some of those habits and some of those explanations in the comments of those report cards or share evidence in conferences with you? But a lot of wonderful, rich discussions happen between students that I wish we could capture in some way. Those discussions and debriefings. So if a child has worked through a problem, made some wonderful observations, made some wonderful mistakes, how is it that we get a student to develop more understanding? And it's really embedded in a lot of those teacher conferences or even student conferences, peer conferences that are guided by the teacher. And one of the last um, points is that math is open. And you were able to see evidence of that today, where students are encouraged to share their ideas, find different approaches, find different perspectives, and be able to share them and explain them. But it's not just about a page with 10 problems on it to do. And once you've done those 10 problems, you're done. It's about thinking in a, in a little bit more of an open mindset. And along those same lines, my husband sent me this yesterday. Well, you're talking about finding different ways to find solutions. Why not use a fitness tracker? Walk your <laughs> perimeter. I thought, oh my gosh, that's so perfect. Clearly, you are listening when I'm explaining what I do at work. Um, but anyway, uh, thank you very much for coming. Foot Podcasts are a production of the Foot School, an independent school for grades K through nine located in New Haven, Connecticut. Visit us online at footschool.org.